0: I think there really is the shortest path for most people towards becoming a published author, towards getting that book deal, is starting the newsletter, building the list. And at this point, I think like if you're going to start a newsletter, you should be on Substack. If you're going to do a business newsletter, so like very financial money-focused, then maybe you want to be on Beehive. But for pretty much everything else, I think like Substack is the place to be.
1: Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. An author website, TikTok, YouTube, personal newsletters, Substack, the list goes on. There are endless different ways that writers and authors can connect with readers. But how do you identify which is the right discovery platform for you? And what's the best way to execute on some of these platforms? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins. Welcome to the Become A Writer Today channel. So I love experimenting with different platforms and tools. Over the years, I've mostly focused on SEO. So I've written a lot of articles for Become A Writer Today, edited a lot of these articles and optimized them for search. Over the past year or two, I've branched out into other channels and I'm mostly focusing on creating videos for YouTube to grow the Become A Writer Today brand. In the past, I did focus on other discovery platforms like Medium. I've spent less time focusing on other platforms, including Twitter, which was probably a mistake, and also on TikTok. So I was fascinated to catch up with a content creator who succeeded multiple times across different platforms. He has a popular personal newsletter. He's writing about Web3 and cryptocurrency. He's also a well-known booktucker. I'm talking about Nat Eliason, who creates content on a variety of discovery platforms. Now, my key takeaway from talking to Nat is that it's still key to have a way of connecting directly with your readers. And for writers, that hasn't really changed. The best way to connect with your readers is through having an email list. You could have an email list that you have set up on your author site and you're attracting traffic through SEO optimized articles or book summaries or whatever it is that you like to write about. Or you could use a discovery platform like Substack, which will take care of some of that email marketing for you. But that's probably the best way for a writer to get their work in front of an audience and also to build their profile. So if you fancy doing something that you've complete control over, go ahead and set up that WordPress website. That's what I did. Or if you just want to dip your toes into email marketing and writing online, then perhaps Substack is the best place to start. In fact, in the interview, Nat describes how he gets many subscribers organically within the Substack app. And that's actually something that a number of Substack newsletter owners have said to me over the past few weeks. The platform is getting better and better. So it's certainly one that I'm going to revisit. Now, I hope you enjoy this week's interview with Nat. He also talks about how he's writing a cryptocurrency book, which will be out sometime next year. So I was fascinated to hear how he's approaching writing about such a complex topic. And a year or two ago, I actually took a course from him called Effortless Output in Rome Research. Now we don't go too much into Rome research in this week's interview, but we do talk about personal knowledge management and that explains what his personal system is. So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Nat. It was certainly a good one. If you do, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store. You could also share the show with another writer or another friend because those shares do grow the listenership and they really do help. Welcome to the show Nat. Thanks and happy to be here. Lots of questions I'd love to ask you, Nat. You've been creating content successfully online across a multitude of channels for a few years now, but how did you get started with writing and with creating content online? What what drew you to this particular type of work?
0: Yeah, I was a philosophy major in college and was getting close to graduation and realized that there aren't a lot of great jobs out there for philosophy majors. <laughs> so I, I started down the kind of entrepreneurship path because that was what I was always interested in and kind of realized early on that I needed to have like some kind of marketing type skills if I ever wanted to grow a business. So I looked at kind of what I was good at and what types of marketing there were out there and content marketing stood out as a really good opportunity for at least a a first job out of college. And so I, I kind of stumbled into the writing blog articles as marketing world in my senior year and started my blog then started putting up a few pieces and then started reaching out to companies that were hiring interns for content marketing roles which was very few and far between but one of those companies that I ended up talking to was Zapier which I think everybody knows about now or a lot of people know about now they're huge they're much smaller back then but I ended up getting I think I was one of their first like Interns. They did this content marketing internship as a trial because content was such a big part of their marketing strategy, and it was really fun because I got to like fly out to SF and hang out with their head of marketing, uh, Danny Schreiber, and the CEO Wade, and just got to learn from them for a week and then work for them for the rest of the semester. Uh, and that kind of like helped set a really good foundation to do a lot of blog and content related work after that.
1: Oh, interesting! I worked on a content marketing team for a British software company up until 2020. So it sounds like you were working for Zapier and then you also decided to set up a side hustle online.
0: Yeah. So uh, during the same time I was working for Zapier, me and a friend built this course uh, called Programming for Marketers. Uh, He had a decent amount of marketing skills. I had uh, some programming skills from just being exposed to it at my college. And it was kind of like a seven part email series on how to learn basic technical automations for common marketing things you might want to do. And this was fun because this was 2015. So I feel like email courses have kind of came and went since then. They used to be like, back then, they were just getting started. And then there were a few years where they were like all the rage. And now I feel like they subsided a little bit. But it was crazy because there was just less competition for good email courses back then. So when we launched it, we were like top three or five on product hunt for the day <laughs> for for an email course. Wow. And had a few thousand people go through that, launched a paid course off the back of that. And that was really cool because we ended up launching the paid course the week that I graduated from college and it did about like fifty-eight thousand dollars in sales that week. And we were splitting everything fifty-fifty. And I was like, Shit, this is a lot of money for a recent college grad. And now I'm like, I did end up taking a job, but I also kind of like didn't have to. I could just keep focusing on the blogging, writing content stuff if I'd wanted to.
1: How have you managed writing across so many different industries and niches or, or niches? I mean, you, you write about cryptocurrency. You've written about personal knowledge management. You create content on TikTok about great books. So it's quite a diverse array of topics.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not. I really don't manage it. (laughs) It it just it just happens. I think that at the end of the day, I'm just somebody who is interested in a lot of very different things and I get bored of things very quickly. And so I naturally float from one topic to the next kind of as I get bored of it. And then the challenge has kind of been like, How do I build a sustainable career in life and to whatever extent a business around that tendency? And writing works well, if you're that kind of person, and if you can make it work, because I really wish I could remember who said this, because it's such a great line, but basically, like a writer's job is basically to filter the world through their lens for other people. And so if you can provide an interesting filter to very different parts of the world, then you can kind of like jump around and be interested in different things, and it can work out. And so I've just constantly tried to do that. And if there is a unifying, underlying thing to all of those. It might be that I think I'm relatively good at explaining technical things to less technical people. So I can, you know, I can take something like crypto or very like esoteric personal knowledge management software, and I can like understand what the super technical, dirty, geeky people are talking about. And then I can like make it more compelling or a little more exciting to the people who maybe can't speak that same language as comfortably or who don't want to. So I think those are often the topics where my writing has done well too. just like bringing this kind of like geeky knowledge to a more mass market audience.
1: Yeah, I took your uh, course, Effortless Output in Rome. I think approximately a year ago. It was a good course. I was trying to figure out how to use Rome Research at the time. I didn't ultimately end up using Rome Research. I but I applied some of the principles from the course to another personal knowledge management app, which Obsidian. I'm not sure if you've used that one yet.
0: I haven't played with Obsidian much. That was probably the right choice. You know, the, the unfortunate thing with the Rome course was it kind of had that like the app had that crazy surge of excitement during that period. And then it felt like the product kind of stopped getting worked on. I'm not really sure what happened there. So even I don't really use it very much anymore, unfortunately.
1: What do you use for your research, planning, and so on?
0: I'm using Reflect now. Okay. But I don't use it as aggressively as I used to. You know, I I think one thing that you realize eventually is that like the note-taking tools don't really help that much. They feel like they help a lot and they feel like they're making you really productive and like you're doing a lot. But most of it's just kind of like, procrastination, right? It's like organizing your desk and thinking that like, oh well if my desk is really organized, my writing will be better. Like it probably won't, right? But it feels good while you're doing it.
1: Yeah, you're you're talking to somebody who spent a lot of time reviewing writing apps. So, so I, I certainly agree with you. Is the book you're writing about cryptocurrency, which I understand you may have sent your editor, is that the main focus at the moment for you?
0: Yep. That's the main project right now. So I was working pretty heavily in crypto for about a year year and a half and then when most when the like market crash stuff happened in May I kind of like stepped back and stopped putting as much time and effort on it but I knew that I could probably write a pretty good book about crypto and about that period that would kind of again going back to this idea of like taking something kind of cloudy closed off confusing and making it very understandable and approachable to more mass market That was kind of like the idea that I pitched for the book and it got picked up by Penguin's imprint portfolio. And so I've been working on that since June or July of last year, but kind of like in earnest since September.
1: That's quite a long time. So is the book more about an explainer or insights from your experience in crypto? Or have you interviewed other people who were involved in the space?
0: A bit of both of the first two. So I think that a, a straightforward explainer would just be very boring and be way too technical and in the weeds and people have tried to write some of those books and they just don't do very well i think because without like some story to hang it on it's just hard to follow and hard to be interested so it's it's a combination of story driven of the time period and uh explaining some of the more like technical stuff that was going on behind the scenes in much easier to understand language oh interesting it's basically for everybody who like Saw the crypto headlines or had a friend or a relative or somebody from high school who was super into it, and they were sitting around wondering like what the hell was going on in crypto the last two years like that's what this book answers
1: so you're at that weird place where you've sent your book to your editor. Well, what do you do when that happens because a lot of writers get a bit antsy, you know they're waiting on feedback, they're not sure if they should continue working on the manuscript or do something else, or just take a break.
0: yeah, I'm just letting it sit for a few weeks and Playing video games and making TikToks and working out and <laughs> doing other stuff and just trying not to think about it too much. I have found that the the periods of letting it sit have been very, very helpful. You know, I think stuff kind of like percolates in the background and your mind figures things out when it's at rest. So giving my head that space to kind of like ruminate on things and, and figure out what to do when I go back to it will be very helpful, even if it feels unproductive at the moment.
1: I read some great writing advice from Joan Diddy and a uh, famous American non-fiction writer, but when she, when she finished an essay or a collection of her works or screenplay, she'd put it in the freezer for a few months so she'd forget about it and then take it out once on the afternoon, and read through it with a more critical eye. I like that, yeah. So you, you also have a couple of different newsletters as well. How do you decide what newsletter to focus on for, I guess, for your crypto audience versus your personal writing? Because you also write about philosophy, so I'd imagine there are two subsets of readers.
0: I haven't done the crypto newsletter in. Months, like six months. So I, I really just have the one newsletter and I send that every Monday. And it's really just whatever I feel like writing about that week. I'm not super, you know, like I'm not really focused on any particular niche with it. And that certainly limits the size that it can grow to or that it has grown to because it's almost like a hard thing to recommend to people. It's like, oh, you should read this newsletter. What's it about? Like, uh, I don't know. Right. But, <laughs> but it finds an audience anyway. Everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, whatever. And so, yeah, it's just kind of like I've I've set the expectation for myself that I'm going to publish something on that newsletter every Monday. And then usually during the week, the thing that I want to write about for that week will kind of naturally emerge.
1: Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, so over the past few years, I've I've focused a lot on producing articles that rank in Google Search and an SEO to build up my site. And that worked quite well. Lately, I've been looking at, you know, discovery platforms like YouTube and uh, TikTok. So mostly focused on YouTube. I'm recording long and experimenting with short form videos. But I don't want really to use TikTok, so I haven't used TikTok much. But you've had a bit of success with it. Would you be able to describe what you're doing on it?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really just talking about books that I've read. And, you know, I tend to read a lot. I think if you're going to write a lot, you have to read a lot. It's really one of the only ways that you can try to get better passively. And I've taken notes on the stuff that I'm reading for years. And I was always just publishing those on my site, you know, like, like you said, SEO type strategy, it's very good for ranking. And, you know, to this day, if you search a bunch of book titles, and then add like summary or notes to the end, my site is usually one of the first ones that comes up. And I've just had those notes sitting there forever. And somebody mentioned that there were a lot of people on TikTok who were really into books and like book talk was pretty big thing. And so I figured, okay, cool, I'll go check it out. And they're right. It's, <laughs> it's a big community. And so I started just using all the books that I've taken notes on for the last eight years or whatever, to make videos about them. And it's it's found a really uh, great audience so far. So that's been a fun kind of like side thing to do to take a break from the writing because like you can't really write all day. It, like, you run out of good energy after a few hours, I find. So this is a good separate thing. And it's a good future marketing channel for when the book comes out.
1: I found that two to three hours is about right for most writers with a few exceptions like Stephen King. Uh, After that, it gets harder to uh, focus.
0: Even Stephen King, though, if you read between the lines of his like on writing book, I don't think he does much more than that because he says that he like gets up and works for a few hours until he gets his 2000 words. And then he stops for the rest of the day. That's probably two to three hours for him. And he only does that for three months. And then he takes a six week plus break. So it's like, He's not working at least a third of the time, like on on week to weeks, too. It's kind of crazy because like he's obviously been very prolific, but it shows that you can be super prolific without having a totally insane writing schedule.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess he's in his mid or early 70s.
0: Yeah, that helps, too. His first book came out when he was like 26.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong. So he has a a long back catalog.
0: Yeah. And he's been writing until he's 72, 73. So 50 years of publishing a lot of
1: books out yeah he's written some fantastic books over the years he's one of my favorite authors so i'm curious about your, your research process like i've tried to improve my research process some of the principles you taught in your course elsewhere so i keep a type something that's called a zettel Kasten. i'm sure you're familiar with the concept but you mentioned you've years of book summary notes so would you be able to describe your process for writing a book summary for nonfiction fiction writers might be interested
0: Yeah. I mean, I I pretty much never write a book summary. I don't personally find that super useful. What I'll do is I'll just read books and then highlight anything that's interesting as I'm going and then add like the sticky tabs to note where the highlights are so I can go back and pull them out later. And then sometimes when I'm done with the book, I'll go through and pull them out right there and put them into my note-taking app. Other times I'll just leave them and then see if I ever I'm curious what those notes were, and then I'll go back and pull them out. It's basically the building a second brain method. But I usually don't do the more involved steps like the uh, progressive summarization and whatnot, unless it's one that I'm coming back to over and over again. For the most part, it's simply just highlighting things as I go and leaving the sticky tabs and then seeing if I ever come back to them. And one thing that I think is nice about having physical books versus... Reading on like Kindle or something is is something about like the spatial reminders, like seeing the books on your desk or on your shelves or whatnot. And like, these aren't really my bookshelves, they're like outside the office. office. Like, something about seeing all of it, I find is a really helpful reminder of what the ideas are. So that if I'm like stuck on an article or if I need a reference for something, I can kind of just like go look at my bookshelf and some part of my brain will remember something from one of the books and kind of like pop out at me. So I really don't put much time at all into the summaries or research or anything that I think we would call like organizing my knowledge
1: from books. Mm. So I've, found it harder over the years to read Kindle books unless it's just to quickly look something up. Yeah. Um, and I've gravitated back towards uh, physical books. And I, I think that's because I spend a lot of time looking at a computer screen. So totally. I guess the Kindle's another digital device. But I, I do find audiobooks quite enjoyable to listen to. So does it take long to turn your, your book summary then into a script for a TikTok video? Or do you just look at the notes as a type of index points and then just shoot off the cuff?
0: I can do it pretty quickly, but I think I've had a lot of practice. You know, I I did some YouTube videos for a while. I've obviously been writing for a while and making tweets and things. So the writing the scripts for the TikToks goes pretty quickly. I do loosely script it, but the, I don't know, it comes very easily for me. I'm not sure why.
1: Hmm. So somebody's listening to this, uh, like a writer, and they're looking for a platform to get started on. Should they start a newsletter based on your experiences or or is it? creating a YouTube channel or perhaps is it publishing stuff on their author website or is it TikTok? What do you think is the greatest opportunity for creatives today?
0: Yeah, I mean, if your goal is to be a writer, then obviously, you know, you should be writing, right? Like not making YouTube videos or TikToks or whatever. Those are good if you need extra marketing, but they should always be like a second or third priority. Like the first priority has to be whatever the writing is. And, you know, I do think it's worth asking whether you want to write articles or write books. I think a lot of people spend way too long, and like I, I definitely fell into this too. Spend way too long writing articles. If you really want to write books, like if you want to write books, like figure out how to start writing books. And I think there's a lot of merit to that because like nobody really remembers articles. Like you might remember a few articles, you might recommend a few of them, but you think about how many like books you have on your bookshelves. Think about how many books you've rented to people, Uh, and think about how like forgettable articles generally are, even great articles. We just don't value essay length content very much. It's kind of like good brief entertainment, and occasionally it'll have a really good idea. But like, books are the medium if you're a writer. So figuring out the shortest path between you and book writing, unless you want to be like a journalist, right? Like a living or a, a New York Times or something, right? That that would be the exception. I think is a good question, and the answer is pretty much you either have to have some meaningful credential, right? Like you're a Published professor, or you have some, you know, crazy business experience or life experience, like you know, something like that, or you have an email list. And if you have an email list, like you can get a book deal. That's just the short of it, because not many people have a multiple thousand-person email list. And if you can get there, then that means you can sell some basic number of books, or you'll be able to get like that first book deal. So, I think that really is the shortest path for most people towards becoming a published author, towards getting that book deal is starting the newsletter, building the list. And at this point, I think, like, if you're going to start a newsletter, you should be on Substack. If you're going to do a business newsletter, so, like, very kind of, like, financial money-focused, then maybe you want to be on Beehive. But for pretty much everything else, I think, like, Substack is the place to be. I get most of my subscribers now through the Substack, like, referral and recommendation program. Like, it's just, it's great. And they handle just, like, everything for you. You don't have to worry about web hosting. You don't have to worry about, like, you know, formatting and stuff, it just makes it so much easier for you.
1: I interviewed a author yesterday, and she's actually advocating that aspiring authors serialize their book directly on Substack because of, for the reasons that you described, basically it's taking care of marketing and there's organic discovery now built into the platform.
0: Does she mean like publish it on Substack
1: or? She was advocating that if, if you had a book, so it could be a memoir or it could be a novel, you would take chapters from the book and just rewrite them as installments that you would publish each week. Oh, yeah. Um, you might make a few tweaks. You know, a chapter does not translate directly to a Substack uh, newsletter, but she was a big advocate for that.
0: No, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom that uh, Andy Weir is kind of the classic example of this. That's how he wrote The Martian, was he just sent a, a newsletter every week with like the next chapter of the story and then got feedback on it and kept writing it that way until it was done and then once it was done he compiled it into an ebook i think and he, he was like trying to give it away for free and then eventually it got picked up by a publisher and then a bigger publisher And then you know it's a movie with matt damon like it's, it's a cool story
1: it is yeah it's a great book as well i've the book to the film when you're on substack do you spend a lot of time promoting your newsletter these days or do you just rely on organic discovery
0: i pretty much just rely on organic discovery for my focus right now is just kind of on, like writing the book. And I think for for my newsletter in particular, it's just a tough thing to promote. Because, you know, I, I can share the articles on my channels. But like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to drive ads to it. I'm not doing SEO on it. I'm not trying to get like links from other publications or ask other people to promote it. I think like growing that as hard and fast as possible just isn't a huge priority right now. Because well, partially because you know I, I've got the book deal, right? So I'm like working on that. And a lot of, I think, book success is not entirely just like how big your newsletter is. Like the much more important thing is the quality of the book. Like the size of your newsletter will get you an initial amount of sales, but 98% of your sales are gonna come from word of mouth and from the like viral coefficient of the book. So if one person buys it, how many more people do they tell to buy it? If that number is above one, then you can have a really successful book. If it's below one, then it won't succeed. And all that the newsletter does is add a multiplier to that initial starting number. So if you have you know, a viral coefficient for your book of like 1.5 and you start with 10,000 sales, then it will grow much faster because it starts at a larger number. But if you have a viral coefficient of like five and you start with 10 sales, it'll still turn into a really successful book. But if the book's not viral, even if you... Force 20,000, 50,000 people to buy it off the bat with a huge newsletter, it's still not going to be very successful because people aren't recommending it. So it's tempting to focus on like the marketing, the marketing, the marketing. But at the end of the day, like the most important thing is for the book to be really good.
1: Hmm. When you were writing your book and considering what to do with the finished version, did you explore self publishing at any point or was it always on your mind to try and get a traditional deal?
0: No, I, you know, I've I've done some self-published books, ebooks in the past, and I obviously know people who self-published books. And, you know, I still just, for one, I don't think that self-published books are as nice. Like, I can tell every time I pick one up, it's obvious that it was a self-published one, even like at the really, really high end, right? Like Doggin's book with Scribe and everything. It's like, you can, you can kind of tell, there's like, there's a little hint of it. And, you know, the the bias is still there too, right? Like, I wouldn't feel like I really published a book if I self-published it. Because, you know, it's kind of like matters to get like accepted by that esteemed pedigree, whatever, right? Like it makes a difference. It feels very different. And also it's nice to have like pros who are working on all the parts that you don't want to work on. Like I don't want to think about typesetting. I don't want to think about binding or like getting everything set up on Amazon or distribution or all these things. Like I just want to write. And I will very happily give up a lot of the upside to like have people handle all those other things. I think there's a good analogy to like venture capital where you can totally bootstrap a company and fund it all yourself, fund it through sales. But in the vast majority of cases, that will end up being a smaller business and it will grow much slower. And if you really want to, you know, be... uh, Google or Amazon or have like a huge, crazy blowout success of a business, it helps to raise money in the beginning. It helps to like share the upside. I think it's what you're doing when you go to a traditional publisher too. You're sharing the upside and like your slice of the pie might be smaller, but the whole pie can be like way larger. So I think it's almost always the move unless somebody is doing like very niche specific books where they might not be going for 100,000, a million copies. They're going for a smaller number and they just want to own more of the sales. Or if you're doing like werewolf smut or something like then it might be easier to just self-publish it because people you know, consume that stuff like candy. So <laughs> that's kind of where I've fallen on that.
1: Yeah, I saw David Goggins speak in Dublin a few weeks ago. He did briefly touch on his decision to self-publish and my takeaway was that it, the success of his book surprised him and a lot of it was down to that famous Joe Rowan interview that he did, which is more about him and his incredible story yeah, than necessarily certainly the book. So not everybody, or there's only one David Goggins.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that might be another situation where it does make sense, right? Like if you really don't need any support on the marketing and I mean, and to do it right, like to do it really, really well, you're probably going to be spending like 50 to 100 grand of your own money to self-publish it nicely. So, if that amount of money doesn't mean anything to you, and you know it's worth investing that much to have most of the upside of the sales, then like maybe it makes sense. But you're still probably going to have to like hire a team to manage a lot of the logistical stuff for you that you would otherwise get for free with a publisher. You know, it's not—I don't think it's quite as cut and drive a like obvious financial win to self-publish. And then I think what a lot of people do is they say like, "Oh, I want to self-publish so I can." Have more of the upside. And then they, they kind of like go cheap on a lot of the stuff, like the paper and the typesetting and the cover design and all these things. And then it just looks like a cheap book. And then it's hard to recommend to people because it's like, oh, this isn't like, it's not like a real book. Right. So I do feel like if you're going to do it, like you really, really have to do it right.
1: Mm, makes sense. And finally, I'm curious about when you do finish your cryptocurrency book, and I know you'll spend time promoting it. Do you imagine you'll stay writing about Web3 and within that particular niche or niche, or you're just going to see what you're interested in next?
0: I'll see what I'm interested in. If it goes well, there might be demand for a follow-up book. I don't know if I'd want to do one because you know I already don't talk about it too much anymore and talk about other things. And you know, no matter how good the money is, like if I don't want to write about it, it would just be very hard to like do additional content. So it'll just depend on what I feel like doing, honestly.
1: So where can listeners go, now if they want to re- read your book or check out some of your work?
0: Yeah, I'd say check out my newsletter. That's where all my writing is. It's just com, And then basically whatever platform you're on for social media, I'm there. Just Nataliason on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I guess I'm not really on LinkedIn. I'm on those three. <laughs> so you can follow me there.
1: I'm surprised you're not on LinkedIn. A lot of online writers are using it these days, but um, yeah, yeah, I'll put the links in the show notes.
0: <laughs> uh, I just hate, I hate LinkedIn so much. I hate it. It's so just cringe and annoying. Like it just makes me sad every time I open it.
1: Yeah. I kind of associate it with uh, when I was in the corporate life. Yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> but okay. So I, I did hear one really good explanation for why it does make sense to post your stuff on LinkedIn though. And this is one of the few things that like changed my mind on it, which is that in corporate America, it's socially acceptable to have LinkedIn open on your computer during work. But it's not acceptable to be on like Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. So if what you're creating could appeal to people who spend all day in an office, putting it on LinkedIn does help a lot with reach because that is the one like social media they get to use all day. So I heard that from Paul Miller. I thought that was a pretty compelling argument for why i should like
1: yeah it's a good explanation
0: yeah i was like okay maybe i should swallow my pride and like post some stuff on linkedin i don't know <laughs>
1: yeah i'll certainly look into it thanks for your time nat
0: yeah thanks so much for having me
1: i hope you enjoyed this week's episode if you did please consider leaving a short review on the itunes store